Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have an episode here where I'm just going to break down some of my training so far the last, I guess, couple months, but more specifically the last kind of training block, just to kind of give you a highlight of my training approach and kind of what I've been up to how I'm doing things maybe differently at this point versus what I was doing last year at this time or at this phase in a training block and some of the reasoning why and things like that. And it just felt like a good time to do it too, because this last weekend, I also participated in the Rocky Raccoon 100 mile race where my goal was a bit different than most 100 miles I norm, 100 milers I normally do. Uh, I'm not unfamiliar with using races and training or as long runs, I've done that with like 50 Ks through hundred Ks in the past. Um, never before with a hundred miler, but this wasn't necessarily a simulation for like long run development, the way it would be with those ones. It was more an opportunity to practice a fueling strategy that I've been working on the last few weeks. And it is something where my biggest concern with it would be some sort of digestive or gastrointestinal issue. So it's very difficult to stress test that sort of thing in training when you're preparing specifically for like hundred mile races, because there's just no workout, even the long run, that's going to get remotely close to the duration, which is going to be a very important variable when it comes to digestion is that duration or the time you're actually trying to kind of feed during these events. So in order to really stress test it, I sort of needed a opportunity to actually get out there and run for quite a while or the, the the actual distance of 100 miles and since rocky raccoon was conveniently timed and located it's about a two and a half three hour drive from where nicole and i are living so uh jumped on it and it also happened to coincide with the very end of a big block i was training for or for training in so the reason i like to put it there is uh, I would typically have a deload week after that. So uh, there's not a lot of like focus outside of recovery and kind of recouping energies for the next block of training during that following week anyway, which gives me the opportunity to have a situation where, you know, even a hundred mile or where you're not necessarily going there to wring yourself dry, still a hundred miles, still a ton of time on feet. There's still a recovery process that has to take place after something like that. So having a deload week on the schedule anyway, gives me an opportunity to kind of double dip on recovery uh, without sacrificing as much training. Now, will I sacrifice some future training with this? Most likely, like had I go on, gone out and done, say like a 30 mile long run, could probably get away with a day off and then kind of ease back into training. Whereas with something like this, you know, looking at, uh, you know, probably at least three days completely off. So there is a trade-off there. I don't want to be, um, I want to be upfront about that because when you're planning out your training, it is very valuable to look at that component of what value am I going to get from this particular workout? And then how does that actually feed into the whole picture? Or is it going to take out more than it's putting in, for example? And usually it's not something like, should I run a hundred mile or not? Usually it's more along the lines of, I'm doing a workout. Do I do a couple extra reps or not? Or I'm doing a long run. Should I go an extra 30 minutes or something like that? Something that could like potentially take a future workout off the table versus a more meaningful amount of time. 
Uh, but you know, those things add up over the course of a plan. So like, for example, say someone doing focusing on short intervals finds themselves always going to the max every time where they get to the end of their last one and they cannot physically do another one or feel like they cannot physically do another one. And they're likely taking future work off, off the, off the, the training table. But if you do that once, probably not a lot of consequence. If you do it every time you do one of those sessions, that adds up over the course of a training plan. And you may actually end up with less volume at the goal intensity, or at least less volume at a quality goal intensity that you would have, if you had say run a couple less intervals, each individual session. So now that we kind of have that cleared away, um, I know people are going to be curious about what is the fueling strategy that I was working on and things like that. And um, I'm going to do a podcast on this down the road once I've had this kind of fully tuned out so that I don't have to do like a follow-up one to address any changes I make because it's not it, it's not quite where I think it'll end up being yet. Um, but it I didn't need to get further in order to test the digestive side of it. And that was the real big question that I had as to something that, like I said, I wouldn't really be able to stress test and training the way I will be on a race. So, you know, I do have probably 300 milers on the schedule this year coming up. So it just was like a situation where I didn't want to try this out on a goal, a race and have it backfire digestively and have that kind of be the, the reason or, you know, a reason as to why things don't go well at it. And this was kind of that good opportunity. So we'll jump into the training. I'll talk a little bit about Rocky as well. And then, um, we'll uh, we'll call it for this one. Just a couple announcements about the episode itself. In the episode, I talked a little bit about uh, Professor Blatt's 30-30 short intervals and kind of the hows and whys those are structured the way they are versus what you maybe would see in a typical short interval session or a different short interval session. If you're interested in more details on that, I actually did have Professor Blatt on the show a while back. And it was episode 233 titled Blot 3030 Short Intervals. If you're interested in doing a little bit of a deeper dive into what I reference in this episode with that. I also spoke a bit about it with Matt Fitzgerald in a little bit more of a holistic sense, whereas Matt uh, was just outlining just his perspective with that particular protocol versus some of the other structured ways to do short intervals and things like that. So if you're interested in checking that interview out, that one is episode 238, Matt Fitzgerald, Short Intervals and Endurance Training. Before we get rolling, just a quick shout out to one of the show's primary sponsors this year, Element T Electrolytes. They are my go-to electrolyte supplement. They make a very convenient product that has these little packets that include 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Last year, I got my sweat test done, and it turns out I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of fluid lost during a workout or throughout the day. So I'll usually mix one of those packets in about two liters of water. If I'm going out for training sessions, I'll also use their chocolate flavor sometimes in the morning with my coffee. It makes a perfect mix if I use like maybe half a packet of that, some coffee, some heavy cream, hits the spot, sends me out to my morning session, ready to roll. Uh, they are currently running a special for HPO podcast listeners, which is a free sample packet with any purchase. So if you go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, you will be prompted to receive that free sample pack with your first purchase. So 
What that allow you to do is figure out, first of all, if you enjoy the product, and second of all, which flavor is your favorite. My favorites right now, chocolate with that coffee in the morning and watermelon for any of my fluids that I'm drinking throughout the day or out on workouts. So if that's any help for you, those would be a good starting points in my opinion. So head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO to check out their stuff. You can also access those links in the show notes or on the show sponsor website, which is zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. The biggest difference in my training, and this actually kind of dates back to the end of 2022, was when I finished the Brazos Bend 100 miler in early December. That was a big mental win for me because I was coming off kind of a reoccurring injury that the earlier part of the year, or essentially the first half of the year, uh, really kind of limited the types of workouts that I would have done or the the path at which I would have typically taken had I been 100% healthy. Then after rehabbing that uh, that ankle injury, I was ramping back up with the with the mindset that I had injured that at one point and then re-aggravated it and was just very conservative because I didn't want to have yet another reoccurring situation. So I tended to take the more conservative route across the board, even with speed work, uh, so short intervals, long intervals, long development, volume in general, all that stuff I took a much more conservative approach to than I would have in prior years. And uh, then that was like, you know, something I felt, felt I needed to do in order to really feel like uh, I could make it through a training block and test where my limits were at and where my ankle actually was at. And if I was going to be able to, you know, give a little more, a little more aggressive of an approach down the road. And then ultimately test it on an actual hundred mile race too, because like I said, with, with this, this last weekend, you know, there's, there's a difference between just making it through training blocks and then running hundred miles in one day. So I was also really curious as to like, how would it feel after Brazos? Would it be as, would it be no more sore than the left side essentially? Cause you know, you're going to be sore and a little beat up after a hundred mile or almost no matter what. So I wasn't expecting you know, to wake up the day after Brazos and have my right ankle feel hundred percent. I was expecting to wake up the next morning and have everything from the waist down feel subpar. So my question was, does it match the other side? And it did. So I was really happy for that. Um, one other question still kind of remained is Brazos is a very runnable course, a very like tame, varied course in terms of variance. It's basically packed dirt the whole way. So um, like maybe a, a notch slower than a road surface almost. So um, given the nature of my injury being ankle and kind of point of contact, so to speak, you know, there's still maybe some question as to like how tolerant would it be on a, like a course that has some technicality or some very terrain and uh, Rocky Raccoon also does have that. Now Rocky's not super aggressive by all means. It's I think just under 6,500 feet of climbing and descending over hundred miles. So relatively speaking, that's a very runnable hundred mile course, but there is varied surfaces. There's a lot of roots on that course. So there's a lot more opportunity to kind of engage your ankle in a variety of different angles than you would say running on a flat road or a track. Um, so, uh, yeah, coming off of Brazos, feeling confident that I could kind of take training up a notch a bit. I got back into training fairly quick. Um, and I, I just bounced back from Brazos probably a little bit faster than I have in prior hundred milers for whatever reason. Uh, but I got back into things by mid December and then actually hit 
a pretty aggressive training week by the end of December and closed out the year and entered 2023 with a 121 mile training week. And that actually included, included some, some speed work too, where I did uh, some short intervals during that training block. Uh, I think there were two minute, two minute repeats for that one. Then, um, you know, for my purposes of training, when I'm preparing for hundred milers, if I think that I have a strong enough kind of aerobic foundation, then I'm jumping into speed work pretty quick because that's going to be the least specific thing to what I'll be doing on race day. So it behooves me to work on those things that are important, but non-specific earlier on. And oftentimes that means like short intervals tied to like VO2 max or what we should probably start just calling velocity at VO2 max or the pace at which you can move at your VO2 max since your actual VO2 max number isn't necessarily indicative of a whole lot um, relative to like where your performance is going to end, but your the pace at which you move at your VO2 max is important. So for example, let's say I have an average VO2 max number. I'm not going to improve that to become like elite VO2 max number. What I can do though, is I can improve the pace at which my average VO2 max number is produced. So um, you're getting faster at that same intensity essentially, which is a theme with my training. I'm always looking at like, am I improving in pace at the intensity that I'm targeting? So early on, get a lot of short intervals. So that's been kind of the theme or one of the target workouts that I've been doing throughout. I've also done a few more kind of, I guess you could call them strategic longer runs too earlier in the plan than I normally would. And part of that's just because uh, when I look at kind of the whole picture or like maybe you saw the global picture of like what I've done in the last year or so, I feel like I have a little bit of capacity to lean into that a little bit more just because uh, I did, like I was saying earlier, I just didn't do as much or as aggressive of them there. So uh, given the nature of what I'm preparing for this year, I have been throwing in some more long runs. Not every week I've had some weeks where I just, you know, took a break in the long run altogether, but I've also had a couple uh, like pretty long sessions. Like when I paced Nicole at Bandera, I ended up running 50K that day. Um, I had a weekend at the end of the year, entering the new year where I did a 23 miler backed up with a 24.3 miler. So, you know, essentially a couple sessions that were like two and a half to three hours in, in duration on back-to-back -back days. And, and actually that last one, I actually closed out with some speed work. I think it was like a four mile fast finish type of a situation where I was pushing down into the 530 per mile pace range at the very end of what was essentially a 48 ish mile weekend. Um, yeah. And then one thing that I've also been kind of doing a little bit more of this block that I wasn't last year is blocking some speed work. So um, blocking speed work, I've talked about this in the past, but for those of you who are listening to this one in isolation or just unfamiliar, it's essentially just rather than following a typical framework where you do a speed session and you follow that with like an easy day or a rest day, and then you do maybe another speed session a day or two later, like a hard, easy, hard framework, you actually condense your speed sessions onto back-to-back -back days. And there are definitely positives and negatives to that approach. The positive is if you can execute it at a high quality and not get injured, then you will see a small performance advantage to that structure because you are consolidating that intensity to a smaller window. Um, but like I said, if you're someone who's injury prone, or if you're in a situation where you're going to go so hard or exceed the goal of what you're trying to do that first day, 
And then by the second session, that next day, you're kind of flat and the end of that workout becomes low quality because of it. It's going to easily supersede any benefits you would have gotten from blocking it. So in that scenario, you, you're better off going hard, easy, hard, uh, and structuring it differently. But, you know, I've done speed workouts now for a couple of decades. So I have a pretty good grasp of like, all right, I should stop now versus trying to do another interval or two. And I also kind of hedged the bet a little bit with that where, um, and this is a good trick for those of you, especially those of you doing longer events where leg turnover isn't as important. When you're doing short, hard stuff, if you do those on an incline, you're going to reduce the injury risk with that because you're lowering the impact of it. Cause you think about it, the faster you run, the higher you're going to drive those impact forces, especially if you're going like downhill, you'd switch that up and do it uphill. You still get the intensity, but you get much lower impact uh, because of the uphill nature of that. So when I did block the workouts, most of the time I was doing those on hill repeats versus say a flat or downhill or a track type of a setting. Um, Entering the the new year, I did take a deload week after that 121 miler to close out the year, uh, which was, it was just kind of necessary at that point, I think based on what I had done the couple of weeks leading into it, uh, also had come back from some travel too recently. So just had a little bit of extra fatigue kind of in the body that I felt would be good to kind of take a step back for a week and then ramp back up. But following that is where I entered the three weeks leading into Rocky and, or actually, no, I'm sorry. That was uh, four weeks leading into Rocky. And those four weeks were 99 miles, 117 miles, 125 miles. And then that week of Rocky, 146 miles. And within those, there was a fair bit of intensity. So like I said, main focus was uh, short intervals. I did do, um, I did do some threshold work um, which I'm pinning to an intense day. I could sustain for about 60 minutes in a race day setting. Uh, but most of it was the short stuff. And I actually played around with some, some, a little bit of a different short interval than I typically do. A lot of times for short intervals, I'm targeting say like two to four minutes at that velocity at VO two max. Uh, usually when I'm field testing what my velocity will be, I'll do like a 12, maybe 15 minute time trial where I, I run it about as hard as I can by myself. Um, so I'm not creating like an advantage with, you know, a pacer or a group or a race setting or something like that. Um, although you can do that, you just might want to extend the duration a little bit in some cases, because you're going to likely produce a little bit of a faster pace. Um, but that's how I'll kind of pin the intensity, at least to start with. And then from there, I can always adjust if I find out like, this is just feeling a little too intense for this type of a workout. Uh, after the first session or two, I can always step back or if it's the reverse, I can always increase it, but really tying it to a specific intensity is better because your pace should improve. So that's a moving target. It's going to be hard to say like, oh, I produced this pace in the time trial. Therefore I should pin all my short intervals to that pace that doesn't carry over to different environments. And it also doesn't carry over as adaptations occur and you actually get faster at that intensity. So if someone does a field test um, or a time trial and produces a specific pace and then decides to pin all of their say short intervals in this case to that pace, you get four, five, six weeks down the road, you're going to have some development take place where if you do that same pace, it's going to feel easier. And it's going to feel easier because you're no longer targeting the intensity you did before. So the way I like to look at it is intensity should stay fixed. 
pace is the moving target. And if things are going well, that target should be moving in a positive direction in terms of your pace coming down at that intensity. Uh, so the, the more you do this, the more you just kind of get to know what that intensity feels like. And you probably wouldn't even necessarily need to do a field test in some cases. Sometimes I don't just because if I have to go and do say like a short interval session, I know what it feels like based on like the years and years of doing those type of workouts, what it should feel like, whether I'm going too hard or too easy and, and that sort of thing. But sometimes I like to do them anyway, just because they're kind of fun and you can kind of compare to previous things and kind of just get a gauge of where your baseline fitness at that intensity actually is at compared to where it was in prior seasons and things like that. So, um, those are some values to it, but I did, uh, two, what I was like, what I'll call like very short intervals. So for those of you who listen to this podcast, um, more frequently or all the time, you'll probably remember I had, uh, Dr. Paul Larson on recently, and he was talking about these really short intervals, like as short as 30 seconds. Um, and that is kind of a process that was popularized by, um, professor Blatt and it's called the 30, 30 short interval approach. So it's really kind of interesting, actually. It, the, the idea behind it is that if you're trying to maximize the time spent at VO2 max, you should run your velocity at VO2 max uh, for a shorter period of time because there's this like lag after you finish, whether you completely stop or just phase into like an easy recovery jog of about 15 to 20 seconds where you don't necessarily like, or you remain at or near your hundred percent VO two max. So you have this window of time where you kind of get this little extra benefit. So the thought process is you do 30 seconds, you slow down, you cash in on that 15 to 20 second benefit or lag time. And then in this case, 10, 15 seconds later, you start your next one and start ramping that right back up again. Uh, and over the course of say for the, the prescription for Balot would be doing 30 of these. So 30 by 30, 30 seconds on 30 seconds off and do about 30 of them um, for 15 minutes of total volume spent at VO2 max. You're going to have more time accrued with just more of those kind of lag opportunities versus if you said, let's say you did four minutes, four minutes, you know, you're just gonna do fewer of them to get within that 15 minute target. So you're going to have less of those lag time opportunities. Um, I don't, I don't think this is necessarily like the silver bullet. You should just only be doing these very short intervals. I think there's also really good evidence uh, like in the Siler research that would target two to four minutes as optimal in terms of the amount of time. Cause there's also a, a lead in, of getting up into that intensity too, that you want to be considering, uh, as well. But, uh, I wanted to try some of those out. So I did structure some of my short intervals in that kind of framework. So that first week in, uh, that first week after the deload, I did some very short intervals, uh, on kind of block style back-to-back -back day. And then, um, I ended that, that week I didn't do a long run, but I did actually do a bit of a threshold run on Saturday instead. So that was a pretty high volume week, but it was also a little bit lower volume. Um, or I should say it was a pretty high intensity week, but it was also a little bit lower volume than what I produced the next three weeks. It was the 99 mile week. Next week, I got back into kind of my normal training uh, protocol, hit 117 miles, as I said before. And uh, I 
went back and did this time I did one session that was the very short intervals. And then the follow-up session or that second day that I blocked, uh, I did a little bit longer. They were closer to two minutes. So I did them on a hill. It was about a quarter mile hill. Uh, I think if I remember right, the hill is like around 10% incline. Um, so just pushing that intensity for that quarter mile or so roughly two minutes. I think the faster ones were a little closer to like a minute and 50 seconds or something like that. But, um, I found that to be kind of a, an interesting strategy because that second day of the blocked workout was the uphill. So it's going to be a little less impact, um, compared to if I would say do it on the flats or something like that, as I mentioned before, the other thing to consider too, when you're doing this, if you decide to block your, your workouts, the way that I did during this last uh, phase of training is you probably want to put the easier of the two, if that is the case on the second day. So you're going to be a little better off from a maintenance of quality standpoint to make the harder session first, if that sort of makes sense. So if you're going to block your workouts, it's probably better to not make the first day a little easier and the next day, like noticeably harder, because you're just more likely to kind of fall off at the end in that case, or again, potentially welcome an injury or something like that. Uh, that week I ended with a pretty, pretty decent long run of just over 20, about 24 and a half miles. Uh, that was a little under three hours and, uh, that was that 117 mile week. So I jumped right back in, um, after an easy day on that Sunday to, um, what was the second biggest week of the year so far, which is 125. And I still maintain some speed work at that one. This one though, since I knew I was coming off a higher volume week, the week prior and going to be doubling down with more volume was I, I did my speed work. I still blocked it, but I did both of them on that uphill setting. So again, those quarter mile uphill interval sessions that I was talking about before, I basically did that two days in a row. And, you know, you know, perhaps that gave me a little bit of an opportunity to be able to do a little bit higher volume at that since I wasn't creating the impact that I would if I was doing it on the flats or the downhills and, and, uh, and going from there. So yeah, and then that weekend, I kind of closed it out with two kind of sort of back-to-back -back long runs of just over 20 miles each. And then that's what got me to the 125. So then we get into the last week, which was my biggest week so far of the year, 146 miles. Big reason for that was because I did hundred miles in one day. So it's like getting to 146 miles is a lot more likely when you run a hundred of them in one day, but I did take a rest day that Monday after that 125 mile week. It was, it was planned, but it was, uh, when I woke up in the morning, I, I didn't feel that bad. I actually felt like you know, I could probably go for a little bit of an easy run, but knowing that I was already going to have a pretty big volume week, even with that rest day, uh, it was probably best from a long-term trajectory, not to get too aggressive at that point. So, um, I sort of treated this week leading into Saturday as a little bit of a, a deload from speed work, not necessarily from volume though. So after that rest day on Monday, I kind of maintained a two a day training session where I would do run in the morning and run in the afternoon, but I kept the intensity quite low. They're basically easy runs outside of Thursday afternoon. I did what I call like a base run, which is just what some people would refer to as like zone two or at or just below your aerobic threshold versus easy where it's just as easy as it needs to be, um, to recover. So, uh, there tends to be a, just a little bit of a faster pace, but still underneath the aerobic threshold for those base runs. Um, yeah. And then Friday the day before ran just under eight miles, pretty easy. 
And then Saturday, hundred miles at Rocky raccoon. And I ran, I think it was 14 hours and 57 minutes for that one. So the interesting thing about it was when I started that race, um, it was just a wild week. We had these ice storms in Austin that week that began Wednesday morning, essentially. And we lost power at five, like around five 30 in the morning on Wednesday. And when we left for the race on Friday, we still hadn't had power back. So we ended up losing power for, I think around 60 hours total. And it was just a, a weird few days where, you know, you're, you're living without power more or less. And there just, wasn't like really either great communication about it or just unknown, a lot of unknowns where the messaging kind of was like, Oh, power should be back in say 12 hours or something like that. And then, you know, you would wait a few hours and all of a sudden it'd be 24 hours. Then it was like the next day. And then, you know, one of those things where had we seen this coming ahead of time and knew we were going to be out of power for that long, we would have just went and gotten like a hotel or something like that. But we actually uh, toughed it out and stuck around at home uh, with no power for those three days before leaving. Uh, so it was already probably a little bit of a weird, weird lead into a race itself. But since it, you know, since it wasn't an A race, I wasn't really overthinking it too much. Um, then the morning of during the race itself, it was kind of just an interesting experience. I, like I said, in the beginning, I've never done a scenario where I went this far on what is presumably fatigued legs after like the end of a training block, every hundred miler that I've done in the past has come after like a thorough taper. So I was kind of curious as to how my body would feel throughout. And generally speaking, I felt like it was just an interesting experience where I definitely felt a little flat pretty much all day. Like I didn't have basically like I was moving at moving a gear slower than what I felt like. And, um, but mentally I felt like really consistent, optimistic, happy to be out there. Didn't feel like it was tedious or, um, boring or what sometimes happens. You just kind of lose interest. Uh, or it's hard to maintain focus during these hundred miles or one of the things that I practice a lot in training for these hundred miles is like, maintaining focus throughout and not thinking too far ahead because the easy thing for your mind to do in these hundred milers is you're early on and you're already thinking about, Oh man, I got to get to like, I got to get to hundred miles, got to get to hundred miles. And that just gets overwhelming over, over time and just fatigues you mentally. So you want to try to combat that as best you can. And again, it's just like, kind of like the fueling and stuff. It's really hard to practice that outside of a race itself because you're just not going to run that far. So you have to try to find weird ways to kind of practice that in training, like visualizing yourself being at certain points of a race for long runs, and then using those as kind of dress rehearsals that you can lean on during the race itself. But for whatever reason for this one, I never I didn't have to battle that at all. It was just like the, the entire day, I was just kind of like content being in the moment, just moving along the course, kind of checking off aid station to aid station. Um, it is a pretty good course for that though. It's a 20 mile loop that you do five times and there's basically an aid station every four to six miles. So you can, you can use, you can block that out. It's built into the course essentially is what I'm saying. But, um, it was interesting to see the course, uh, Nicole's done it a bunch of times in the past and the course has changed over the years. And it, I think the new course has a little bit more climbing than the old one did it still kind of has the root sections that it's kind of known for, but I think there's probably a little less root sections than there was in the past from what I remember being out on that loop, uh, I guess it was six years ago at this point. Um, my recollection was that there were more routes the time before, but perhaps that was just, uh, you know, my 
my lack of remembering it properly, but Nicole felt the same way. And she's been on that loop multiple times for the whole five loops and um, actually has the course record there for the, for the women. So uh, she would probably have a good perspective. I would imagine uh, after the race, it was really kind of an interesting recovery process so far. So I'm recording this episode on Wednesday, which is uh, my fourth day removed. And usually from a hundred mile or races, I, after that third day, I start feeling like normal walking around, like hundred percent normal. Like I don't recognize from any like tightness or aches or pains that I had done a hundred miler. Now that doesn't always mean going out on for a run is going to feel like that, but you don't like have any of those kind of like real noticeable stuff by just going about your day. Uh, and that's matched up pretty pretty equally to what it would have been in the past. So the difference though was one thing I do did notice was the parts of my body that got hit the hardest during this event were my my feet and lower legs a little bit. Um I suspect that's just the very terrain I was on since I hadn't been training on that much the last year plus. Um I just probably don't have that kind of like 100 mile tolerability to it the way the rest of my body does on something that's flat. So that to me, that's a sign. I just need to get back out on some of that terrain a little more frequently, especially if I'm going to do a race like this or a race that's got more of it, uh, which is a good, a good thing to kind of note. You kind of get a sense of what parts of your body are maybe lingering behind in certain environments than others. The other interesting one was like hip flexors and my hamstrings were a little bit sore than they normally are. And I think that was mostly because you, first of all, there's a little more climbing than what I, what I would have done at like Brazos and preparing for that. Uh, so you are going to probably drag your knee up a little higher, but then there's also the roots out there that you're stepping over. So, uh, I'm also probably lifting my leg up a little higher, more consistently do that over the course of just under 15 hours, probably gonna be some soreness from that. If you're not doing that on a regular basis in your training. Um, and then same kind of thing with like ankles and feet, you're just stepping on more varied stuff. You're stepping over roots and things like that. Uh, so you're going to have a little more like multi-dimensional action with, uh, the areas around those parts when your foot strikes the ground. Um, so yeah, I think what I'll end up taking away with that is I'm going to one, start including a little more running on some of that type of terrain. Uh, even if it's not like a focus race, just kind of include a day per week where you get out on that type of stuff and, and kind of maintain some consistency there, uh, do a little more like hip flexor strength work and then continue to stay pretty diligent and maybe add a little more kind of foot ankle strength type stuff too, which can be a combination of strength work and also just doing a little more running and lower profile shoes. So sort of like what I said in the beginning of this episode, um, now that I feel like I have enough confidence in my body to be able to put in some more aggressive pieces to the training puzzle, I'll likely also start to reduce some of the cushioning in my shoes that I'd been running in the last year or so while I was trying to make sure that that ankle stayed, um, stayed healthy out while I was running where I think it's now at a point where I can, can tolerate some of that load a little better. So for me, that just means a little more running in the Escalante racer and a little less running in like the Torin or something like that, that has a little more cushion to it. Um, yeah. And then outside of that, I think that's a, a pretty good download of kind of what's going on. Uh, I'll probably start doing some easy recovery runs at the second half of this week and feel out where my body's actually at, get a couple of, uh, weeks where I'll, I'm probably gonna keep the volume a little bit lower, 
Um, cause really my goal is to be like peaked in around June. So I don't necessarily need this much volume, uh, for a little bit here. And it's better off that I probably continue to develop some speed work type stuff. What will likely change on the speed work front is I'll probably start shifting towards a little bit of a lower intensity speed work, which just means coming down from that like velocity at VO2 max type target to more of that threshold or what I said before, I would pinning at an intensity I can do for about 60 sec 60 minutes in a race day setting, uh, which is just for me, usually longer, longer intervals. Um, I think I'll keep some of the short intervals in for a little bit, but not necessarily as the focus and then start pushing more training low towards those longer intervals in the next few weeks. And then, um, uh, kind of keep building from there. But yeah, if you have any questions about my training or your training and the approach that you're taking, things like that, feel free to reach it out. Cause I'm going to be continuing this year by doing likely in most weeks, weekly topic-based episodes where I do go over specific topics or questions that get sent in from the listeners. So if you have one of those, feel free to reach out to me at hpopodcast at gmail.com or shoot me a note on one of my social media channels. You can find me on Instagram at Zach Bitter, Twitter at Z Bitter, or head over to my website at, or my website, ZachBitter.com, where you can send me a note from there as well. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to a hundred miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athletes guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.